Welcome to Talking Biotech, the podcast dedicated to exploring the latest advancements in biotechnology, sponsored by Calabra, the R&D software that accelerates scientific discovery with AI. Each week, we'll dive into the latest innovations and discoveries with industry leaders and pioneers. Now, here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulta. Welcome to the Talking Biotech Podcast. It's the weekly podcast about agriculture and medicine with an emphasis on biotechnology and the good things we can do for people and the planet. My name is Kevin Folga. I'm your podcast host and a professor who worries about communication and your understanding of the current issues in science. And with all the discussion about uh, new diseases and, and new problems with COVID-19, there's so much focus on detection and understanding very rapidly exactly what's there, exactly what we're dealing with as diagnosticians and our medical system being able to accurately determine what is the problem that a patient is suffering from. Different pathogens would lead to different courses of treatments. And in order for those to be precise, the detection system itself has to be uh, very precise. So today we're speaking with Dr. Alon Singer. He's the CEO of HelixBind. And welcome to the podcast, uh, Dr. Singer. Thank you, Kevin. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thank you very much for joining me. I think this is a really timely topic because of everything happening with COVID, everything happening with uh, other forms of uh, of diseases and disorders that we're really starting to crack more and more, you still see a problem with the age-old question of sepsis. So let's start out with some definitions. What is sepsis? That's a, that's a great question. Um, sepsis, um, I guess the best way to define it would be uh, a that it is a sim- syndrome of physiological abnormalities caused by a dysregulated response to an invasive infection, uh, most commonly of the bloodstream. I guess to put it more simply, sepsis is a life-threatening condition that occurs when our body's response to an invasion to an invasive infection of the bloodstream injures our own tissues and organs. Okay, so this is a, a essentially a blood infection. How much is that a problem in modern healthcare? Um, bigger than most people are aware, um, it is a major public health concern um, in the U.S. You know, focusing on the U.S. About 1.7 million Americans are afflicted with sepsis um, every year, and unfortunately, 270,000 of those don't survive. Um, Globally, um, the numbers are, quite honestly, even more staggering. We're estimating roughly 50 million cases and 11 million of those don't survive. Um, I will add that even for those that do survive sepsis, uh, we know that many of those patients um, often have long-term physical, psychological, and cognitive complications which impairs our quality of life. And maybe this is goes without saying, but was sepsis really the major cause of death back when people were still trying to figure out, you know, surgery, for instance, you know, was, was this really a much bigger problem before there was a lot more emphasis on sterility and even things, things as simple as hand washing? So, you know, that's a great question as well. Um, by and large, our, the incidence of sepsis is actually increasing. That doesn't necessarily mean is because we're doing anything wrong, but we're becoming more aware of it. It goes without saying that as we've improved um, our sterile practices, 
we've probably gotten better. And if anything, we're probably um, helping the situation, having less people that are being that could have been afflicted by sepsis being afflicted. But back in the day, before we had you know antibiotics, before we had hand washing, um, the situation was likely much more severe. And and you mentioned antibiotics. Is the prevalence of multi-drug resistant bacteria making sepsis a bigger problem? Um, Luckily, so far, again, one of the things that we have to understand with sepsis, right, is that, um, you know, almost any bacteria, almost any fungi infecting the blood um, can induce a bluster infection. Um, from a microbiological perspective, the literature has shown that different regions globally or even domestically tend to have a somewhat different breakdown as to what pathogens are more common. Uh, the good news is, is that while we have resistant drugs, well, sorry, we have resistant um, pathogens, typically what we're not seeing these multi-drug resistant pathogens being the cause of sepsis. They're usually not something that are too exotic. And in the vast majority of cases, we do have the means of treating these infections with um, drugs, specifically antimicrobials, such as antibiotics and antifungals that are readily available in the hospital's pharmacy. Well, what makes bloodstream infections so challenging to treat? Um, so I, I guess the good news here, if it, as it were, is that, as I said, bloodstream infections are caused by common bacteria and fungi. Um, the challenge really is, is can we, one, can we find the infection? Two, can we identify and characterize that infection? Because that's what clinicians need. That's the information they need to actually pick and choose from the pharmacy's um, immense arsenal, uh, the most appropriate antimicrobial to combat infection. And three, can we do all of that in a reasonable time frame? meaning, you know, a few hours from the onset of suspicion of sepsis. Unfortunately, we the reality is we can't do all three of those at once. And until that, or we can't do all three of those well at once, and until that information is, is in hand, clinicians simply don't have the tools to develop a personalized targeted antimicrobial intervention, and they're forced to treat empirically. I see. So this is really kind of uh, personalized medicine as exposed by the by the pathogens that are there to treat. Correct. And how, how important is the speed of diagnosis in the long-term benefit of the patient or in terms of, say, the, the patient's, uh, you know, eventual symptoms and recovery? Right. So um, time, what's known in the field is time to the initiation of the appropriate antimicrobial. That's been demonstrated time and time to, again to be a one of the key predictors of patient outcome. There's been many studies through the years that have shown that the probability of survival, just you know, focusing on survival, is reduced by almost ten percent in the every hour in the absence of an appropriate antimicrobial intervention. Yeah, it would seem like you have to do this pretty quickly and and be able to also not just be able to throw the kitchen sink at the patient and see you know just to try to cover all the bases. Well, that that's exactly not only the past, but unfortunately, that's exactly what's done today. And 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 I want to be clear: nobody's faulting clinicians here. Um, you know, as I said, you have to treat fast, right? So what that means is clinicians can't wait the time required uh, for blood cultures, which are today's requisite um, for diagnosing blister infections, to turn positive. That can take anywhere between one to five days. So they have to treat in the absence of diagnostic confirmation. 
the, this means that the first line intervention one, the one that they get in right off from the onset, consists of multiple broad spectrum antimicrobials. Really, you know, as you said, throwing the kitchen sink, just an attempt to cast a wide, uh, a net that is as wide as possible to try and get as many pathogens as possible. Um, but, you know, we don't, we don't want to take broad spectrums because for the same reason you and I aren't taking them now, broad spectrums are not good to take. Antibiotics are not good to take. Um, and it's extensive use of these compounds, which is known to increase the likelihood of what's known as antibiotic-associated adverse drug events. Um, and that includes, you're probably aware of these C. diff infections, these hospital-acquired infections. Um, so it's not a good approach, but unfortunately, it's the only approach they have because they just don't have the information they need. So you kind of just touched on this now that it takes one to five days to do a culture. So is that really the way that it's done? You just, uh, you know, ship it off to a lab and have people smear it on plates and you see what it turns out to be. Well, so the way it's done is culture, but you have to remember culture is just a first step. So historically what's been done, and this is still done today is they draw blood from a patient they draw that blood into a what's known as a culture bottle, but a bottle with media that makes the bugs, if they're there, the microorganism happy, and they stick that bottle in an incubator. Once that bottle becomes positive, that means enough of the bacteria have grown, and again, that can take anywhere between one and five days, then they can then do the next step, which is to try and decipher what that bug is. And you can think anywhere between you know, classical microbiology, which would be gram-stating, biochemical approaches, um, or more recently, and this is a great advance, is the inclusion of molecular diagnostics to work off positive culture bottles. But again, the challenge here is the culture. We still use cultures, and for all their power, and don't get me wrong, they're, they're phenomenal, they still take one to five days, and they have a lot of additional weaknesses. Well, let's talk a little bit more about that current, you know, that form of detection. When you're talking about, uh, you know, gram staining and all that, we get that. That's classic microbiology. But are they using uh, molecular techniques like PCR of like the, the internal transcribed spacer of, say, the bacterial ribosomal genes to be able to dif- differentiate who's in there? So once you have a positive blood culture, so if you think, you know, in a milliliter of blood for a septic patient, you may have as few as, you know, a handful, five, 10 cells in a milliliter of blood. Once you've gone through culture, you're looking at somewhere between 10 to the 7, 10 to the 8 cells, right? So taking a drop from that culture bottle and putting it in, you know, classically, you know, in a molecular test would be a PCR test, right? Very commonly looking at the 16S for, for, for um, or the ribosomal DNA in general for whatever the pathogen is, that is the gold standard. But again, the bottleneck isn't so much after the culture is there because there are a lot of tricks of the trade that can be done because you have enough bugs. The challenge is, can we do this directly from blood without culture? I see that. That, that makes a lot of sense because, you, you know, growing that culture and you got to also understand that outside of the body, some of the pathogens are going to grow at really slow rates. Correct. You know, there's a lot of interesting problems with that. Well, what about the overlay of COVID-19? How does that really change? Uh, pose any special considerations to sepsis? And is that part of uh, COVID-19 infections these days? So, you know, that's a challenging topic to to answer and a a challenging question to answer um, as truthfully, the data is coming in fast um, and our knowledge and experience and expertise is rapidly evolving. So um, what I can say is that 
you know, with COVID-19 patients, uh, secondary bacterial and fungal co-infections are, are definitely a concern. And I will say it's not just for sepsis, but for any invasive microbial infection, um, for example, the respiratory tract, right? Um, to my knowledge, uh, the first widely discussed study looking at this was published uh, earlier this year in The Lancet, um, and it demonstrated that roughly half of COVID-19 patients who, who died in hospital Wuhan, China, had secondary bacterial and fungal invasive infections. Um, you know, one thing, Kevin, that we always have to remember is that, you know, as a, as a physician, you're not treating a test, right? You can run as many tests as you want. You're not only treating the test, you're actually treating the patient. And a lot of these patients who are positive for SARS-CoV-2, the virus that causes COVID-19, it's not the be-all end-all. A lot of these folks that are hospitalized are very, very sick. So if they have a secondary microbial intervention, infection, sorry, uh, identifying them quickly and accurately is crucial. You, you need to do that so you can intervene with the most appropriate antimicrobial intervention. And broad-spectrum antimicrobials, which are often prescribed, they inhibit not just blood cultures, which is one of the weaknesses of cultures, but of any cultures. Once you've given patients antibiotics, follow-on cultures, again, any cultures, they are a suspect. And, uh, and as an example, there was another paper published that looked at two New York hospitals and about 10, 90% of critically ill COVID-19 patients did receive broad spectrums empirically. I see. So that just can confound the results because it can affect the culture, right? Correct. Yeah, so we're speaking with Alon Singer. He's the CEO of HelixBind. We're speaking about the problem of sepsis and the way in which it's been previously detected and some ways that his company is working on new technologies to be able to sort out what are the root causes of blood infections that can rapidly be diagnosed to bring on the most appropriate interventions. This is the Talking Biotech Podcast, and we'll be back with you in just a moment. Would your participation in social media save lives? Early in COVID-19, we thought the world would finally gravitate towards science and evidence, especially in response to a global pandemic. However, from national leadership to conspiracy-plagued internets, it's clear we're suffering from an information pandemic as well. Now here at the Talking Biotech Podcast, we give you the information to battle disinformation around technology, as it applies mostly to agriculture and medicine. Information here allows you, the listener, to participate in broader discussions with confidence, helping to advance innovation to application. Today, all of us need to be engaging the copious nonsense that plagues social media, especially in the area of COVID-19. Crackpot claims, bad science, and poor quality publication are only deepening the pandemic, at least here in the USA. Kudos to the rest of you. So this is a call to the science-minded. Identify who you can trust. Share their content on social media networks. Join the conversation. Gently and kindly refute false information. Remember, you'll never change the mind of someone unwilling to learn, but the internet is a spectator sport. Become the trusted source of information to help those that don't know who to trust. Help them realize who to trust. 
and make better decisions that could ultimately save lives. Improving the world with a simple act of kind communication. That's what the Talking Biotech Podcast is all about. And your participation has never been more important. And now we're back on the Talking Biotech Podcast. We're speaking with Dr. Alon Singer. He's the CEO of HelixBond. And we're talking about sepsis, the problem of sepsis, how it's currently treated, and ways in which improved biotechnological diagnostic tools can help sort out what are the root pathogens causing sepsis so that the most appropriate treatments may be administered. So we left off talking about COVID-19 and some of the problems there, but some of the things your company has worked on, what is the approach that you've taken to come up with more rapid and accurate diagnosis? From a high level, what we want to do is we want to test the blood. We don't want to test that that blood culture because it has a lot of um, weaknesses, despite the fact that it is a very powerful approach, but we want to sidestep the need to do blood cultures. We want to test directly from blood. I see. So you're looking really for a needle in the haystack here. And so how, how rare in, in, you know, say you're taking a few milliliters of blood, how rare are these, are the signals you're looking to detect? So I think the, you know, from right off the bat, the challenge is that nobody really knows, right? So if the gold standard today is blood culture to, as a, as a requisite to any test that's downstream to, to, to diagnosing bloodstream infections, the minute you culture blood, the minute you culture the blood, the bacteria start to grow. And any what concentration or more accurately load information that was in the blood is gone. So the reality is nobody actually knows. Um, the best estimates today are anywhere between what's known as one CFU, which is a colony forming unit, um, a little bit analogous to uh, a single cell, to around several hundred CFUs in any milliliter of blood. Okay, so you may be looking for one bacterium in a milliliter of blood. Correct. So that's yes, that's pretty sensitive. Uh, is is that really how this works? That they ship to you a few milliliters of blood, and then you just run the test on the on that uh, sample. So to start off, I think uh, I think we have to understand that unfortunately we can't ship the blood because of the fact that clinicians need the information quickly. One of the challenges in this is that the test that needs to be the test that's implemented needs to be implemented on site. So you're looking at developing a test that can be placed in the hospital lab. I think that's the first challenge, right? Um, turnaround time, when you consider, is not only the time to run the test, but also the time to get the blood sample to the test. Um, but in essence, it is a challenge of a needle in a haystack, right? Um, you're, looking at, you're looking to find a handful of cells. And if you think about the blood and focusing, again, we focusing on a molecular approach, which is looking at the genomic material, you may only have a handful of cells in a milliliter of blood, but you may have as many as 10 million white blood cells, which, which contain our, our DNA, in that same sample. It really is the mother of all needle and haystack problems. Yeah, it really is. And so can you talk a little bit about the technology that allows you to identify you know, that needle in the haystack? What's your magnet? So I guess the first thing we, we realized is that there is, there's a lot of problems with sepsis. I mean, everybody will say, 
and rightly so, don't get me wrong, that sepsis is a sensitivity problem, right? So if you only have a handful of cells in a milliliter of blood, the challenge is sensitivity. And, you know, I always say my response to that is that is true, but the reality is it's more complicated. The reality is that there are additional challenges that are equally as important that we need to solve. And what we've identified is that there's no single technological innovation that is in, that is sufficient to create this all-inclusive diagnostic that can identify pathogens directly from blood. Um, I guess the first thing we have to realize is that if you think of molecular diagnostics, and I think, you know, the process that everybody talks about is PCR, right? Well, PCR is used in this, you know, these small volumes, literally less than, than 0.1 ml, right? So, so from a, a purely statistical analysis, simply testing 0.1 ml blood, it doesn't make sense if you're trying to detect one or two cells in every milliliter. I don't care how good your test is, you're not going to find it. So you have to find a way to get the bugs from the blood concentrated such that you can actually do a molecular test. And I think that's the first challenge. So in understanding where our technology comes in is in understanding that this is a needle in the haystack, rather than trying to find that needle in the haystack, what we first do is we burn down that haystack, meaning we remove all of the human DNA, all of the white blood cells, we remove all of them. And we then try to find that needle in the embers of that haystack. That's a much easier process. What we found is that there's a lot of sample preparation upstream of the molecular test, as it were, um, that allow that you need to do in order to get good results, shall we say. And can you talk a little bit about how you burn it down? Again, there's multiple ways of doing this, right? One, one way could be a filter. One way could be centrifugation. We found that, you know, that a lot of different methods have their advantages and disadvantages. One of the things that we have to remember, this is something that needs to be done in a hospital lab um, and needs to be easily automated and really somebody that something that anybody can do and very difficult to mess up, right? Um, along those lines, we chose not to take those two approaches, but rather what we're doing is we found a, we add to the blood a solution that, that we've created that what it does is it selectively pops open all the white blood cells, but doesn't affect um, any of the bacterial or fungal cells. So it lyses the white blood cells. And in doing that, all the human DNA um, is exposed. Right. And then we have an approach um, which is based on electrostatics, which we use to um, mop up all of the free DNA. And we're left with a blood based solution that, you know, it still has all the gunk in the blood, no human DNA and viable microbial cells. Ah, very interesting. So that makes a lot of sense. So how do you then detect the microbial cells, at least down to the species level? Right. So once we've removed um, all of the human DNA, um, it becomes a much easier challenge because all all you then do is you find a way to crack them open. And there's a lot, there's a little bit, there's tricks of the trade here and how to do it in a manner that is both uh, repeatable, reliable, and automatable. But we crack open the microbial cells, we extract and we isolate, we purify th their genomic material. Um, then we do do PCR. But interestingly enough, um, we actually have a final step because if you, re if you recall, there's a lot of different bugs that may cause sepsis, and it's important to identify which one it is, because different bugs can be treated very differently, and they often are. So we actually, um, from a detection standpoint, a discrimination standpoint, what we do, um, we don't detect via PCR, we don't detect via DNA hybridization, which is kind of the gold standard approach, but we have an artificial nucleic acid um, that 
provides us with with unprecedented uh, sequence and species um, specificity that allows us to differentiate among very, very closely related species. That's exactly what the information clinicians need um, to drive appropriate antimicrobial care. Okay, but here's one thing that comes to mind to me is your technology can only detect what they know about, you know, the, the, the bugs that they know cause these problems. Or, or does it have some capacity to identify maybe something novel that may be present? So, the, so our technology, by definition, only has the ability to um, to identify. Not saying detect. Detect. We can detect essentially any bacterial through the conserved sequences um, that are conserved within the ribosome of DNA. But from an identification perspective, if science doesn't know. Um, what that bug is, then us providing information on that bug is not going to be useful. So we can only detect known bugs. Now, the good news there, as it were, is that roughly 90 to 94% of all sepsis cases are caused by around 15 to 20 bugs. So by covering 20, 25 bugs, um, you're covering the vast majority of sepsis cases, especially if you're considering the fact that the bugs that aren't covered are quite rare and they're likely not to be resistant. And that's the, those are the cases where broad spectrums, at least there, we know they're probably going to cover those bugs. I see. Yeah, that, that's a question from the plant biologist that doesn't know much about uh, blood diseases. So, <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, wasn't sure exactly who was in there. So uh, how fast does this work from, say, sample to result? So we're looking at a time frame again from the minute we insert it to our analyzer, our instrument. Um, it's all, we have single use disposable cassettes that the blood goes into. We snap the vacutainer in, and then we push it kind of like a CD player, a car CD player from I don't know twenty years ago. Um, it's around just under three hours we can get the sample to the answer. Okay, so that's that's pretty quick. So much better than what is currently, you would say, maybe five days? I think today you're looking anywhere. Between, that's, I think that's one of the problems with, um, with cultures is that you actually don't know how long it'll take. Um, it's anywhere between one to five days. I see. So the, the beautiful part about this is that it allows you to look for all of the uh, known contributors to this disease and do it very quickly. And uh, that seems to be the really a breakthrough in this technology. So is the same kind of approach being used in other detection of pathogens and other diseases? So this approach can obviously be used for other, for other diseases, for other pathogens. It goes without saying. I think the reality is that you can get by with simpler or more straightforward approaches for those kind of, um, for those kind of, for those kind of viruses or for those kind of bacteria that may not be relevant to the blood. I think the challenge here is the fact that, as I said, sepsis is identifying bluster infections. There's a lot of challenges, and the challenges are the loads are very low, the concentrations are very low, and you have a large number um, of different pathogens that may cause a disease that you kind of have to fish them out. So it's really in this situation, while we can use our technology and we are planning on using our technology in other disease areas, uh, bluster infections kind of because of the challenges associated with there, that's where really we feel we have our niche. Yeah, is this something that's easily deployable in the field, like say for military use or maybe in uh, the developing world? So definitely. So the way we've designed this is that it's um, the test of blood sample, as I said, would be snapped into this plastic cassette. And, and the way the cassette works today is that all the reagents are already on board. Uh, you don't have to put anything together. Um, it is room temperature stable right now. We're still working on that, but it's room temperature stable for over a year. 
and the and it, the system that operates the test is about the size of a benchtop computer, or sorry, a desktop computer, I should say. Um, and all we need is standard wall power, 120 volt. Oh, that, that's really great. Yeah, it seems like a really interesting technology that uh, could open the door to lots of other kinds of uh, technologies that would lead to detection of other pathogens in complex matrices like blood. So you've really described that this is a fast and precise method of detection. What are some other advantages of this particular technology? It's very common to say that the main advantage of this of a direct what we call a direct detection approach, where we don't need cultures, is time to result, and, that, and that's clear. But there are additional advantages um, that are inherent when you don't have to use cultures. So, um, first of all, you know when you think of a bloodstream infection, you always you tend to think about that it's caused by this single pathogen. But we know today that's not always the case. There are in some, in some cases, it can be caused by more than one pathogen, by two pathogens. And that's really a problem with culture-based detection because, you know, as we know, bugs, uh, microorganisms, they double. What, means, what that means is that they grow exponentially. So if one of the pathogens grows faster than the other pathogen, what ends up happening is you often miss the second path that pathogen. And because of the fact when you have diagnosis, oftentimes the appropriate antimicrobial is applied or is escalated and the unneeded or unnecessary un unwarranted antimicrobial is removed or de-escalated, that infection essentially goes, you know, is, is not affected. It, it keeps on, it keeps propagating. And we really don't have a response to that with these culture-based approaches. Second, as I said before, time to appropriate antimicrobial intervention is essential. Is essential. But what is also well documented is that blood cultures lose sensitivity by roughly 50% if they were taken after the first dose of antibiotics. So you, here you have a challenge. You've identified a patient that is potentially septic. You want to treat that patient with antibiotics, but do you first wait for the phlebotomist to draw the blood? Because then you're delaying care. But if you, but if you don't delay care, if you wait for the if you wait for the pharmacy, you may hinder, um, you may hinder your diagnostic. Now, most sites we've spoken to, um, you know, will we'll first wait for, um, for the phlebotomist, but this is obviously a concern. And if you work directly from blood, you're not affected by the presence of antimicrobials because you're not trying to grow the microorganisms. So, Dr. Alan Singer, I, this is really fascinating technology. It's an interesting concept. I've learned a lot about sepsis and the limitations to accurate diagnosis. If people wanted to learn more about this technology, where would they look? I think the best place we look at our website, which is www.helixbind.com. Okay, so helixbind.com. Okay, well, thank you very much for joining me today. I really appreciate it. Thank you for your time. And thank you very much for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast. Remember to write a review on iTunes if you haven't done it already. Um, we still have one person who gave us a three. <laughs> All the rest fives. So uh, jump in and uh, help us balance that uh, detractor out. Uh, thank you for supporting us on Patreon and all the other ways that you help keep this podcast alive. Thank you very much for listening, and we'll talk to you again next week. The Talking Biotech Podcast reflects the personal views of Dr. Kevin Fulta and its guests. These are not the views of the University of Florida, its faculty, staff, or students. But after all, it is science, so they probably are, but 
It has to be clear that there is no university affiliation with this podcast, which is a damn shame, but I guess that's how it goes. So feel free to share this science communication effort, recommend guests, and support us with a few shekels over on Patreon. We invest all funds back into promotion of the podcast to widen the audience, enhance production, and expand science communication efforts in many ways. Thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast. You've been listening to Talking Biotech, sponsored by Calabra, the platform that bridges the gap between siloed research tools. With Calabra's electronic lab notebook, scientists can work together in real time, sharing data and insights with ease. Revolutionize your research collaboration. Sign up for a demo today at calabra.app, C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P.